0: was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age.
1: And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son and of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba.
0: When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water, and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Param, and his mother took a wife for him from the land
2: of Egypt. Today, we have finally reached the high point of Abraham and Sarah's life. The longed-for child has arrived. It's finally here. This child of the promise, which a point seems so far out of grasp, is now a source of joy and of celebration, as Abraham and Sarah gather friends and family to celebrate the arrival of Isaac. If you are catching up this story, we have been looking at during this Reboot series, looking at God's work in the life of Abraham. God plucked Abraham out of obscurity, along with his barren wife, Sarah, and made a promise to them, promised to bless them, and through them, bless the whole world. It's a pretty good promise to be made over your life. And I promise to do that through Abraham's many descendants. God tells Abraham, you're going to have as many descendants as sand on the seashore or stars in the sky. But Abraham was seriously old and Sarah was seriously barren. There was no children in sight and there's definitely points along the way where Sarah and Abraham have doubted whether the fulfilment of this promise will ever come. The answer is yes, it did come. It's arrived. God has once again proved himself to be faithful with the arrival of Isaac. Laughter and joy has filled the house as they gather people around to celebrate the birth of this child. This miraculous child in reality. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. I had my first child when I was 22. My last child when I was 33, I was definitely a lot tired 11 years later. I can't imagine how tired they would be at the age of 90. Uh, But it's good news, surely. Finally, this child has arrived. They can play happy geriatric families together. But as a chapter proceeds, we just heard it read to us, it is not a happy household. Things are, the people involved are not content at all. Sarah is not happy. And I don't think it's just because she's tired from having a baby or having a relentless toddler. No, there is definite strife and animosity within the family. The arrival of young Isaac has not brought the kind of joy and peace to the household that they wanted. Things are not looking good. And that's putting it kindly. If you've been tracking with us, you'll know that Abraham and Sarah, as they've been waiting for God's promise of this arrived, uh, the arrival of this child, they took some shortcuts along the way. Sarah said to Abraham, yeah, you need to have an heir. You need to have a son. Now, that was a big cultural capital for them back for then. And uh, so they took a shortcut. Sarah said, why don't you sleep with my servant girl? Get Hagar pregnant, because at least you'll have some son. You'll have an heir to kind of pass on your name and, and your inheritance to. Abraham does that, and sure enough, they do have a child, they have Ishmael. And uh, that sounds a bit weird to us uh, in our day and age, but it would have been less weird back then. That would have been kind of more culturally acceptable. But it was still wrong. It's not God's best for the, way, the way, way for families to be formed. And it was definitely against God's promise uh, to them. And uh, what he'd said to Abraham and Sarah about, you know, uh, living out the promise he'd made them. So I'd move into a place of wrong, and so, sure enough, whenever he sin, whenever he get, get, get things wrong, that sin and the consequences spread. And sure enough, there was strife in the household. Hagar became proud. She says that she had contempt upon Sarah. You can look at this story back in chapter 16 of Genesis. We, we covered it a few weeks ago. But she was proud, was proud about the fact that she had a child and Sarah didn't. And so suddenly, Sarah starts treating her harshly, and all kind of arguments start happening. And Hagar then runs away. But God. And his goodness meets Hagar as Hagar runs out into the desert and says, I've got you. Don't worry. I care for you. I care for this child, Ishmael. Go back to Sarah. Go and submit to her. All we're doing is we're picking up the story 14 years later. Sarah and Hagar and Abraham, the whole story, they've managed to hold it together. They managed to be peaceful enough. But the arrival of Isaac has stirred up this strife, has stirred up the mess and it's come back with a vengeance. And we see in this story, there's a party for the child, Isaac. And that child, Ishmael, who's now 14 years old, is laughing. I don't think the good kind of laughing, playing with his sibling, it seems to be a kind of mocking laughter. That's what the context would kind of suggest to us. And Sarah is seething. How dare this illegitimate child mock my child, the child of promise. So she goes to Abraham, says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman and her son. No longer using the words Hagar and Ishmael. No longer talking about her as a servant. No, she's a slave. And this son, not Abraham's son, no, this son, cast them away. What is Abraham to do? The, whole, the household is again filled with strife, animosity, breakdown of relationships and just general confusion. He is very displeased, it says, with his wife's request, them, but doesn't know how to handle, doesn't know what to do. The good news though, is that God is there in the midst of them. He knows what's going on. He sees it. He hears the pleas of different ones. He has compassion on the perpetrators and the victims. And he is well able to deal with all the myths. Which wasn't just good news for them. That's good news for us as well. Because the same God that dealt with them is the same God that deals with us. He sees us. He sees you. He hears us when we call upon him. He has great compassion on us. Whether we are the perpetrators of the mess that we find ourselves in or whether we're the victims of it. And he is well able to fix the mess that we get ourselves into. Now, you might be thinking, my mess is not as bad as what we're reading here in the scriptures today. And you're probably right. You probably haven't encouraged your spouse to have a child with one of your servants. At least I hope you haven't. But you'd be kidding yourself if you don't think you have any mess in your life. All of us have mess of some kinds. Maybe right now you've got some difficulty with your, teen, t- uh, with your children, either demanding toddlers or disgruntled teens. Maybe you've got difficulty in your marriage, a spell of not seeing eye to eye or feeling lonely in the partnership, an empty shell of a union. Maybe difficulty in your household with passive-aggressive housemates who constantly f- fail to meet your expectations, or maybe you fail to meet theirs. Or maybe in your household, it's not having anyone at all feeling increasingly isolated and lonely, particularly during these crazy COVID times. Maybe it's difficulty in your other relationships where they've broken down either because of your actions and words or more likely because of a mix of yours and theirs. Or maybe as I talk about messy lives, you're thinking the situation of Abraham and Sarah is nothing compared to the mess you've made of yours. The mess you've got into is too big to get sorted. The hurt too painful, the damage too devastating. But let me encourage you, right at the outset of this message, God is bigger than it all. His ability to clean up your mess is far bigger than your ability to make it. His ability to forgive and draw us to himself is greater than our ability to push him away and sin against him. My prayer for you is that today you would comprehend the greatness of God and the greatness of his love towards you. I'm actually going to pray to start. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. You know each person watching this right now. You know the different, different messes that we're in. However small, however large, however difficult and complicated. And our God, you're a God who brings hope. And I just want to pray, God, right now, we might just know your presence. We might know your help. As We just slow down, look at these scriptures and consider what it says about you and what it says about our situations, how we're to relate to you. I want to pray at the end of it, Lord God, we might be those full of faith, full of hope, trusting in you for all that's before us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's have a look at this story. Let's see how it unfolds. i kind of give us some context, but let's start by looking at it from Abraham's perspective. Abraham here clearly loves his family, clearly loves his teenage son. And the, thing, the fact that it's dis- displeasing is because his family is in strife, they're in difficulty. Abraham, at various points, has got it very wrong with his family. We've looked at that over the last few weeks. He's kind of repeated same mistakes over and over again, but he's trying to do the right thing this time. He's trying not to le- uh, listen to the kind of simple encouragements of his wife, but trying to do what is correct. What do you do when you have concern for people in your life? What's your default in those moments? The right thing in reality is to have concern. It is to be displeased when those around us who we love are facing hardship. It'd be weird if we didn't, in fact. But what I find time and time again is that good concern can turn into untrusting worry and anxiety. Concern from trusting in God and being concerned for others to suddenly take it all upon ourselves and, and kind of moving into a place of anxiety and worry. Sometimes it's even harder when it's about other people's situation than it is our own. There's, there's a kind of greater degree of out-of-controlness or even that kind of relational kind of level that exacerbates our worries and concerns. That can lead to us being overwhelmed by worry for those people, literally worrying to death. I was speaking to someone recently, worried about someone in their family to the point where their own health started to deteriorate, literally worrying ourselves to death. Or maybe you go the other way. You think, no, I can fix this. You move into saviour mode. You try and be God to that person, fix the situation or maybe fix them. Neither of those things are correct. What we see Abraham do is the right thing. He doesn't often get things right, but he gets it right in this situation. He takes the situation to God. The strife of the household, he takes to God in prayer. My encouragement to you is that we must do the same. Let's take our situations, let's take the situations of others and entrust them to God. He entrusts Hagar and Ishmael into the hands of the living God, knowing that God is kind and loving and good and able to intervene. But what does entrusting God really mean? It could just sound like religious language, couldn't it? But it's not. When you truly learn to trust God with things and submit to his ways, it is life-changing. It is perspective-changing. It is situation-changing. It's calling upon God to bring the miraculous into our mess. And trusting God, well, that starts with beginning to learn that God is not distant, but he cares dearly about you, about me, about the things in our lives. Our church is called Emmanuel, it means God with us. God is with us in our lives. Do you know that the people you love, He loves as well? Do you know that the people you care for, He cares for as well? In fact, He loves and cares for them more than you do or more than you ever could. He is more interested and shows more care and compassion about the situations for others than you can even begin to think about. None of us think about others every waking moment. None of us think, oh, considering that situation, we can't think about it all day long. We don't have the ability; we get easily distracted. But even if we could think about it all day long, we still sleep at night. Even if our sleep is disturbed, we're still going to fall asleep at some point. But God, well, He thinks about every person all the time and never ever sleeps. Psalm 139 says, His thoughts about you are vast. Or in another translation, they are without number. You think you care about something or someone. Compared to God, you barely give them the time of day. He is consumed with love for you and me. We don't need to come with reluctance about people and situations and think, God, oh, maybe God will listen, maybe God will care about it as well. No, he's already ahead of you. He's inviting you to be involved for caring for them. You're playing catch up. It's not the other way around. He's not invite, you're not inviting him in. He's inviting you in, in the place of prayer to care for them. So what is this entrusting God like? Does it mean simply just letting go and letting God? Have you heard that before? No, let go, let God, God will deal with that. I'll wash my hands of it, let him deal with it. No, no. Entrusting to God means being involved with God as God works in their lives. So for Abraham, two very clear ways he does that. He prays for Hagar and Ishmael and he provides for them. Let's quickly just look at those two things. He prays for them. What's your default when things are going wrong in your life? or when you hear about the situations of other people, where do you turn in those moments? I know for me, I can be very English in those moments. I think if there was an Olympic gold medal needed for um, kind of moaning and complaining and being grumpy, I think the English would get it hands down. It's just part of our kind of natural sportingness, isn't it? To be a bit moaning, and grumpy and, and complaining. Or do you turn to God in prayer? Or maybe someone texts you, hey, this situation is difficult right now. What do you do? Do you send a prayer emoji to them or do you send a prayer to God? What do you do? I know I'm guilty of doing I say, so yeah, I'll pray for you. And then it just kind of goes out of my mind. More and more, I say, if I'm going to pray, the best thing is pray right in that moment, if I can. You can pray anywhere, anytime. And more and more, I think, okay, what are some of the things I can leverage to make sure I'm not just praying in the moment, but praying perseveringly for the situations that God has given me faith uh, to, to, to kind of pray into, to seek his compassion for other people. So he prays. Abraham prays for this situation. He hands it to God. But he doesn't then kind of step back and leave it to God. He also is part of God's compassion and provision to Hagar and Ishmael. He takes a step. He gets them bread, gets them water, wakes up early to help them on their way. What do you do when it comes to uh, other people's issues? There's two pitfalls, aren't there, we can fall into. One is that we can, like I said earlier, become like God, think we have got to fix it, we're going to be everything for that person. And uh, we can suddenly think we're going to do everything and don't give space for God to intervene and do something in people's lives. But equally, we can go the other way. We can get a bit of compassion fatigue. Suddenly, all our friends and family, all got different needs. It's too much. I'll just take a step back. I'll leave them to their issues. I'll just deal with my own. God say neither of those are right. We need wisdom to know when are we to pray, bring the power of prayer into a situation. When do we need to pray and do something else? And I've known both situations where I've thought, oh God, you've got that one. And God's just prompted me to say, no, no, but I want you to take a step. Abraham couldn't provide ultimately for Hagar and Ishmael. What he provided soon ran out in reality. But he got to express just a bit of God's compassion the heart in that moment. Sometimes it's just a small act that we can be involved in. Other times I thought, I ain't going to fix this situation. I've just felt a like check in my heart. say, so God say no, leave room for me. And I've watched him do miraculous things in people's lives far better than I could have done if I tried to help them out. Let's be those who show the compassion of God in the way we pray and provide. So entrusting God to others is not a passive thing. It's an active thing, a thing that we are involved in. But here's another question. Does entrusting people to God or situations to God mean that nothing bad will happen or go wrong? Well, quite clearly not. The situation did not suddenly or merely get better for Hagar and Ishmael. No, they found themselves wandering around a desert. The food, the water ran out and they are suddenly knocking on death's door. How many times have we prayed and things haven't got better? They've not changed, or sometimes they've got worse. It seems that instead of our prayers, pouring water on the dumpster fire of a mess, we've just chucked it in a can of petrol. That's what it feels like. The whole thing has exploded and got worse. That's a tough thing that we must answer, Answer must look at. What's that answer? You know, being a Christian, so yeah, is it going to be easy? Is it going to be good? We can pray. God's, in, God's on our side now. Nothing's going to go wrong. That's not, just not my experience. Actually, that's not what we find in the Bible either. The Bible has two, There's two things I'm going to tell us the Bible says about this. The first thing is that the reason that things continue to go wrong and are bad is because we are in a sin, sick and cursed world. Ever since the fall at the beginning of humanity, we have been assailed by difficulties and troubles and hardships. That's part of being in humanity now. That's part of the curse of our sin and the fall of man. And Jesus says as much. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. And it's important to bear that in mind. Sometimes we just get knocked off course because we thinking, why is there trouble? It's like, no, there is trouble. That's just the reality that almost we need to accept and not be too uh, kind of surprised by it or thrown off course by it. By it. In the most famous of, of, of Psalms, Psalm 23, uh, we quickly think of the good shepherd and green pastures and still waters. And it is wonderful when we get to feel that. Now, there's an uh, ultimate truth there that that is true of us. Where if we're referring God in terms of our sin and the crisis around that. But we don't always feel that. Like, don't always feel like I'm, you know, laying in the sunshine between, beside still waters in the grass. It doesn't feel like that sometimes. It feels more like another verse in Psalm 23, where it says, We're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Those like are walking through deep, dark valleys. Can hardly see the way. The stench of death, of difficulty, is there with us. That is a reality that the Bible talks about. But... The promise of God is that although this world has tribulation, although we walk through dark valleys, God is with us. He says, For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Having Jesus with you is genuinely better than having all of life's ducks in a row. It's better to be in the valley of death with Jesus than be in the green pasture without him. Your good moments are fleeting, his presence is not. Maybe right now you're thinking, Hey, I haven't got much mess. Last easy. I'm coasting through. That's not going to last. Bad news time. It's not going to last. It may be good right now, but trouble will come your way. But Jesus, he never changes. His faithfulness, his goodness, his kindness, his ability to provide does not move one bit. I was uh, speaking with Christina, uh, who's hosting today this morning. We're having a chat about some of our heroes of the faith, talking about Spurgeon and uh, his crazy level of bad mental health and deep depression that he walked through. And I was talking about Corrie Ten a real hero of mine who uh, faced terrible persecution uh, from the Nazis during World War II, but both believers in God. And uh, neither, I'm sure, would say that they wouldn't want their difficult circumstances to be taken away. But I'm sure if you said to them, your circumstances can be taken away, but only if we take away Jesus too, take away Jesus as well, they would fight you. They'd say, no, Jesus is too precious. His joys are too great. His peace is all-surpassing. His love for me is beyond all measure. I can't have life without him. My prayer for myself is that I'm more like that. No matter what tribulation comes my way, no matter what deserts I find myself in, that Jesus is enough for me. The other reason that situations don't immediately change or get better is because God's ways are higher than ours. As I've already said, God is more committed to our good than even we are. He's more committed in love and care for those around us than we are. And although God does no wrong, He can use the wrong and the evil in the world for the good of those he loves. God's response to Sarah's request to cast Hagar out is very surprising. There's evil intent behind Sarah. But instead of rebuking it, God endorses it. That's because God is going to use this casting out for his greater glory and for good of Hagar and Ishmael. What Sarah is meaning for evil, God is going to take and use for good for the planting of Ishmael as a nation of his own. God has purpose in our problems. I've not got time to dig into this loads, but let me just tell you to one of my favorite verses in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. It says this Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it joy when you meet trials. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It produces steadfastness. It results in maturity, in completeness, in lacking in nothing. This principle of adversity being useful is put up in a book that I read recently by Jonathan Haidt. He's a non-Christian, but he's a social psychologist who read the book Happiness Hypothesis, which was a big, best-selling book a few years back. And he found in doing lots and lots of research and reading other people's data that those people who are happier, more confident, more successful in life are actually those who had faced adversity in their life, more so than people who had left a comfortable and easy life. There's something called post-traumatic growth. You might have heard post-traumatic stress, but post-traumatic growth, that people who go through difficulties and come out the other side of adversity actually are stronger and better and happier as a result, finding what the ancient text said to be true. So even for Abraham, there's an endurance and testing of character going on here. We're here in Genesis chapter 21. He's got to decide, am I going to obey God and let Ishmael wander out into the desert? Can I trust God with Ishmael? We go on to chapter, chapter 22, which we're going to come to in a couple of weeks' time. He's going to have to do the same, but a whole nother level. It's not Ishmael, this illegitimate child. No, it's Isaac, the child of promise. And God's not saying, send him into the desert. God's saying, put him on an altar. Let him die if you truly love me. And there's definitely a link between the two. It's definitely saying God's teaching him. That you, can you do this? Learn how to trust me, prove me to be faithful, knowing that you can do it again, at even the kind of deeper depths. Hey, here's another bit of bad news for you. It may be the mess you're in right now is not the biggest mess you're going to face. Maybe the trial and tribulation you're facing right now is not the biggest trouble in for trial and tribulation, easy to say. Uh, but it's God preparing you for something greater. I noticed in my own life, myself and Emma and our two, two, our two young children at the time at one point were made homeless. Through no fault of our own, we found ourselves in emergency accommodation, moved out of Brighton. Very difficult, challenging time for us, having to commute and small kids and just confusing in terms of where we thought God was meant us, meant us to be. It's a wonderful story in terms of God's provision and how it worked out there's a story in the midst of it. In the weeks that we were in, in the situation, God taught us so much. I was once in a prayer meeting and, and, and just feeling the grief and the difficulty of it. And uh, a dear church member, a friend of mine, Rosie Wolford, who goes to the Oasis site, came and prayed for me and prophesied. So I thought God was just saying, God's putting on spiritual muscle throughout this season in you. And uh, it so helped steady me. And as I look back, I think, God, thank you for that time. I wouldn't have said thank you at the time, but I do thank you for it now. Because in that moment, I learned what it meant to press in in prayer. Women to persevere and trust God, prove him faithful, lead my family, lead our team through what was difficult. And knowing that that actually set me up for things later in life, much more difficult things, because there's spiritual muscle and faith going on. What is it that God's teaching you in your circumstance? Work with him. Let's finish by looking at this story from the perspective of Hagar. She is the victim of circumstance in this story. Yes, she had some contempt towards Sarah back in chapter 16. She didn't do well there, but she had submitted. She'd come back in, tried to be peaceful. But suddenly the change has meant she's been the one kicked out. Her and her son have suddenly found themselves wandering in the desert without food or water, literally knocking on death's door. She's hidden her son under a bush in a bit of shade and then removed herself from the situation, thinking, I can't stay here, I can't watch my son die. It's too difficult, it's too hopeless. She's hit rock bottom. But She's forgotten. She's forgotten the encounter that she had with Jesus 14 years previously. Where well, God had met her in the desert when she was by herself and said, don't worry, I've got you. I've got your son. I've made a promise to you. The wonderful news for hey is that God has continued to watch over her, continued to see her. Not one moment has she escaped his attention. Not one moment has he taken the eyes of her. His thoughts were vast. His thoughts for her were without number. And he hears her cry of anguish. He hears her son's cry for help. And he comes to her, comes with compassion, comes to provide for her. I love the hymn that says, uh, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. In this moment, gives her strength, opens her eyes to see a well. There was refreshment for her and her son. Salvation in that moment, but also bright hope for tomorrow. as a promise that she's going to be looked after, that he's going to make her and her son into a great nation. What about you? Have you forgotten the promises of God? Are you feeling hopeless about something? Are you feeling at rock bottom or maybe just numbed by the difficulties of life? Let me take you back to Psalm 23. It says this Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Let's pray that God opens our eyes to his goodness. Like how God opened Hagar's eyes to the world, that we may see around us every day the evidence of God's mercy, his grace, his goodness and compassion. The goodness of his church, of having brothers and sisters to encourage us, and the goodness of his word that we can feast upon the truth that it contains, and the goodness of his Holy Spirit coming to empower us, to comfort us. But most of all, let's ask that God will open our eyes that we see his son, Jesus. Jesus, who is the better well, better than any well that Hagar could have come to any better, any source of water. He is the source of eternal life, the river of living water, able to rescue us from our mess, forgive us from where we have caused it, heal the hurts caused by others, comfort us in our griefs, promises hope for a better tomorrow and a perfect eternity with him. God, open our eyes, let us see you, let us see your love. Does he love you? Does he care? Yes, he does. Enough to die upon the cross for you. Does he love you? Yes, his thoughts are vast, without number. Thought about you even before the creation of the world. You do not escape his attention. Is he able to sort out your mess? Is forgiveness possible? Yes. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. He has overcome the world. His death and resurrection are living proof. His resurrection power is available for us. Bring your mess to this compassionate God today.